0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the confusion surrounding Taiwan, we have with us CSIS's Freeman Chair in China Studies, Jude Blanchett. Jude is also host of the very terrific podcast, Pekingology, one of our very best here at CSIS. Jude, so happy to have you here. Great to be here. So let's get right to it. President Biden stated on 60 Minutes that the U.S. would respond militarily to an invasion of Taiwan, which has set off a whole nother round of speculation and certainly confusion. Break it down for us what this means for the United States and for China and for Taiwan.
1: So this was the fourth such comment that President Biden has made since taking office. And each of these, if you look at them in in parallel, you'll see that each of these to some extent get more clear, but I would caveat by saying they're still difficult to parse precisely what he means, precisely what situation U.S. would use force. In the most recent comments on 60 Minutes, he said if there was a unprecedented military action by China that the United States would put servicemen and women in, in harm's way to defend Taiwan. I think the the charitable interpretation of that is he means if there's an outright invasion by the People's Liberation Army.
0: That would make sense if there was an outright invasion.
1: I think it's inarguably true and I think most would agree that if one day we woke up and the PLA was conducting a Normandy beach style, you know, invasion of Taiwan, that yes, absolutely the United States would respond. You know, we have a uh, Taiwan Relations Act which was passed in 1979 which states that the entire diplomatic relationship with China is premised on finding a peaceful path towards resolving tensions in in the Taiwan trade. We also say that we would consider any use of force against Taiwan as a serious and grave matter. So we've already pre-positioned ourselves that that sort of outlier event of an invasion would trigger a a dramatic US response. The problem is, and, and we can discuss this now or later, That sort of bolt from the blue invasion is the least likely scenario we are going to be encountering. So what we have done here is given a veneer of clarity in Biden's remarks that the U.S. would intervene, but really in in the least likely outcome. And so we're still left with this host of very, very thorny, difficult, ambiguous questions about, well, what would happen to scenarios to the left of that outright invasion? So what is our policy exactly? If you were to ask an administration official or anyone who's worked in the US government on this issue, it would be a very simple answer. We have a one China policy, which is the summation of the Taiwan Relations Act or the TRA, the three joint communiques with the PRC and something we call the the six assurances, which is uh, initially issued in secret under the Reagan administration, but declassified. And these are assurances towards Taiwan. So we list this set of uh, biblical you know, passages and documents, and, and that's what we say our, our policy is. And
0: what does one China actually mean? China is China and Taiwan is Taiwan? Is that what, what it means, basically?
1: Yeah, this is the real challenge of this issue and why there's so much focus on language, both on Beijing's side. They have a one China principle. We have a one China policy is there is a bit of uh, artifice to this, but this was artifice that is built on a set of very calibrated negotiations, compromises, and critical fictions that have been brought together to maintain a contorted peace in the Taiwan Strait. And so what the United States has done is it has attempted to thread a needle of giving China enough face, Uh, the Chinese leadership can say that the United States has agreed that there is one China and, and Taiwan is a part of China. We don't recognize that position, but we acknowledge it. And so we basically say to the Chinese, we see that position. And to the Taiwans, we say, but we don't agree with it necessarily. We're sort of neutral on that question. So what we have done through this fiction, which many find frustrating, is we've attempted to create space. We've attempted to create enough space to where Taiwan and China over a long duration of time could plausibly come to some sort of you know negotiation and find a political settlement. And more fundamentally, though, this is what has been called our dual deterrent approach, where we, in a sense, don't give Taiwan a blank check. We leave some ambiguity in our position about when and where we would intervene such that Uh, Taiwan doesn't feel like it can declare independence. But we also, to China, give the same sort of ambiguous position of we're not going to tell you precisely where the line is of where we will intervene because we know well that if we do, China is going to be pushing up against that line over and over again. So this kind of dual deterrent approach is both to the Taiwans and to the Chinese and, but again, with the fundamental principle of we're, we're trying to just keep this space of peace and stability with the hope that some point in the future, these two sides can find some sort of settlement that will end the civil war that has been going on between these two countries since the 1940s.
0: So mostly what we're trying to do is kind of kick the can down the road and hopefully hopefully that they resolve it peacefully and diplomatically, right?
1: It is a very unsexy strategy in many ways, but that's that's correct. This is an attempt to take what was a, an issue. Which not only Taiwan and China have almost come to open conflict over, but we in China have almost come to open conflict over the issue of taiwan so we've we've tried to take this and find a way that we can sustainably kick this can down the road such that options can break in our favor at some point in the future.
0: Yeah. And I guess this really is the root of a lot of confusion for a lot of people. I mean, you you have senior officials like Lloyd Austin, Tony Blinken vocalizing this year that the United States does not support Taiwan independence. So then that kind of confuses the whole thing for most people who are following this, even the people who are following this the most closely, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. The you know important point for, I think, folks who are watching this from the outside is you'll notice within broadly the United States government, including Congress, that you have a, a variety of different understandings or misunderstandings about what the position is or what the position should be. So on Congress, which of course is not the administration, you'll see much looser talk about the status of Taiwan. Indeed, careful listeners will notice that just a few minutes ago, I, I called Taiwan a country because it de facto has all the hallmarks of a independent sovereign nation state. Sure. So some in Congress say, well, what the heck is this fiction for? Let's just call it what it is, it's a country. Administrations, successive administrations, have been much more careful and hedged to maintain that space as a, as a sort of impartial umpire that doesn't take a side on this. Behind that, though, I think it's quite clear that the United States has much more affinity for this liberal democracy that is Taiwan. And under the, the Taiwan Relations Act, the TRA, we have a legislative uh, mandate to be providing defensive weapons and arms to Taiwan such that, that Taiwan has the ability to repel any, any Chinese invasion. And of course, after the war in Ukraine, a renewed, I think, importance of defending democracies from autocratic powers, which deny the sovereignty of a geographical territory and have designs to take it over, has, I think, quite reasonably imbued this issue with a renewed sense of importance of what can we do to support and defend Taiwan. But just returning to the question, you seem to get different perspectives from different people in government. It is true. If you were to line up 10 U.S. government officials, you might get 14 different personal views and interpretations on the issue. On that very specific issue of uh, Taiwan's independence, I should note, that has been a pillar of US-1 China policy is we do not support Taiwan's independence, right? Now, the reason we do that is, I would say, honestly, not because we have any normative revulsion about Taiwan declaring its independence, but we recognize that that would be a trigger for war. That would be one of these red lines where China would absolutely use military force in response to that. So again, our way of preserving this this space of peace and prosperity has been, and we've done this repeatedly, we've had to intervene on the Taiwan side to say, look, if you go down this road, this is what the outcomes are going to be. And you can't expect that the United States is going to shed blood uh, because you've taken this provocative act. So that's why the issue of independence is so critical. Now, Biden's remarks on Sunday night. He seemed to be saying the matter of of independence of Taiwan is up to the Taiwan voters. He did not add the critical next part, which is, but we wouldn't support such an action because we believe it would be provocative.
0: That's where the confusion comes in.
1: Confusion or, and this is where I think those who say that U.S. policy is shifting have a, a darn good case, is our policy now shifting? Are we moving from this, this long-standing position of strategic ambiguity? And are we moving, and this is Beijing's fear, to really hollow out what we would call the one China policy to, now we have the commander in chief, president of the United States, saying in a, in a very public interview, the fourth time he's been asked, so the cobwebs should have been brushed off, that we are no longer declaratory against independence of Taiwan, that we're basically saying, look, that's up to the to the Taiwan people. Now, as a matter of just point of fact, That is true. It is up to the people of Taiwan. They could pass a referendum and and they could declare de jure independence. But the, the critical point has always been the statement of what does the United States think about such an action and being very clear that the U.S. would see that as provocative and does not support that. And Biden leaving that out, I think, was for many, including Beijing, the loud part that was kept quiet or not said.
0: Okay. So that was Sunday night. We're now talking on Wednesday. Has the administration since that time gone out and tried to clean it up a little bit and said that second part that of course we you know any country that's a democracy can vote to do what they want but we aren't going to participate if in a provocation like that
1: they have attempted to clean up i I would say they they have not effectively clarified though so you've seen remarks by Jake Sullivan you've seen remarks by by Kurt Campbell just over the last 24 hours That we're saying, look, our our policy hasn't changed.
0: Yeah, and we keep hearing that. Our policy hasn't changed, but our policy has been confusing and ambiguous.
1: I think it's disingenuous and getting increasingly dangerous to simply take the actions that we're taking. Many of these I support, but then to declare that our policy has not changed. It creates deep anxiety in Beijing or it reinforces their priors that the United States You know, is deceiving its way to hollow out the one China policy. But I think more critically, it creates uncertainty in our key partners and allies about just what the U.S. position is. And so, again, the administration will say, "Look, our one China policy hasn't changed. We we don't support uh, Taiwan's independence." And three communiques, six reassurances, T.R.A. et cetera, et cetera. That you know they'll they'll cite the biblical passages. But I think imagine you know the key players who are looking at our actions and trying to interpret these would be partners and allies, Taiwan. and and Beijing. And here we're in a very anti-China mood in Washington, D.C., so it's not particularly popular to do this. But as we learned in the Cold War, you have to take the view of your rival very, very seriously. And you have to understand how statements and actions you take reverberate through the decision-making process in Beijing. And I have to say, I don't think Beijing would be totally wrong to come to the conclusion that our one China policy is shifting, that the view of the United States about what it needs to do in its Taiwan policy has dramatically evolved or or changed since 2016 or so. And I think this is where many are now calling on the United States to say, look, if you wanna reformulate what your approach is, that's fine, but you need to do it in a way where you're clearly signaling why you're doing it and what the new approach is. And so there has been a building chorus of folks in this space who have been saying, look, it's time for a Taiwan speech by someone authoritative because this idea of kind of these marginal moves, comments by you know by Biden from up on the mountaintop that we then sort of take the text down and, and spend the next week trying to interpret is now becoming dangerous because we are already in a crisis point in the Taiwan Straits. We saw this with Pelosi's visit and the subsequent you know belligerent actions by the People's Liberation Army. And add on top of that, this has always been a thicket of tripwires where again, as I said earlier, language and precision matters. And so even many of us quite sympathetic to the Biden administration's approach are left sitting here thinking, we're not actually sure what the approach is. And more importantly, we need to start now signaling clearly to both friends and partners, but also frankly to Beijing, because the more unclear our position is, the more it's gonna feed Beijing's anxiety. And just final comment here is, we look at the speeches of Xi Jinping, when they come out and we get rulers and we measure the space between the words and we analyze every single letter and font size to see if there is some you know, big shift that is occurring in strategy, we don't extend the same courtesy to Beijing. We expect them to be able to just sort of understand what we mean, even though we have this morass of confusing discourse and statements coming out by the most authoritative person in the United States government. And I think imagine if Xi Jinping was giving statements on whether or not the peaceful resolution of the Taiwan Straits issue was the predominant policy or not. Imagine if we had just had varying comments coming out uh, from Xi Jinping in the margins of press conferences. We would, I think quite rightfully, be losing our collective mind on what that meant. And I think it's it's about time that we sort of extend the same courtesy to Beijing and say um, precision is going to be a component of reassurance moving forward. So Jude, what should our policy be? in your view? Well, I think number one, it's important we move beyond this idea of strategic clarity versus strategic ambiguity. The idea of strategic clarity is a myth.
0: What is strategic clarity in this sense?
1: Strategic clarity is the United States setting very firm boundaries about precisely when we would intervene and basically saying to Beijing, any action you take against Taiwan will, will necessitate uh, a US military response.
0: So we're drawing red lines with that policy. That's
1: what people think we're doing when they say a, a position of strategic clarity. Here's the problem: without a mutual defense treaty, what you are doing is essentially just making statements about what U.S. Uh, policy would be. But the problem is, and this is why I think clarity is a myth. It will always depend on the precise circumstances, context of what the Chinese action is. And just to return to our discussion earlier on, if it is an outright invasion, I bet the United States could be clear about what our response would be. We wouldn't say specifically, you know, how many troops do we send? But I think everyone, including the PLA, well understands that that would necessitate a direct kinetic response from the United States. That's about the only scenario we can be, quote, clear in. Now, as I said earlier, that's not the scenario we're likely to be facing. Here's a scenario. We passed the Taiwan Policy Act. Beijing ramps up a whole new set of of military exercises in and around Taiwan, including exercises within 12 nautical miles of Taiwan, so territorial waters. Is that an invasion? No. But we are now, quote, clear that we will intervene. So, So is that the thing that triggers a response? Here's the reality. It will depend. It will depend on a whole set of circumstances, right? Here's another one. Let's imagine, again, we have the Taiwan Policy Act, or let's say it's January 2024. Uh, Lai Qingde wins the presidency uh, in Taiwan. He, he leans more independence. Beijing responds by flying some fighter jets over the island as a display of, you know, coercive power and, and to try to intimidate. Is that an invasion? No. The United States has now positioned itself as if we're very, very clear that any military action by China will necessitate a response. What would we do? I don't know. And I would dare say no one here really knows precisely what we'd do. And And that is the point. You want flexibility. And, and in the end, your specific response will depend on a whole matter of context, conditions, situations. Where are we in the war in Ukraine? where's the US economy how much appetite does the US public have to send soldiers to die if it is simply doing exercises within you know Taiwan's territorial waters so i think you know point number 1 is we're we're having this euphemistic debate about strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity i think both have their limitations as as constructs and so i think now just moving to a more clear debate about really what we're saying is the architecture and the dynamics which su- sustained US you know, one China policy have shifted pretty dramatically over the past four decades. And so our approach needs to shift as well, but let's just stop kidding ourselves that simply, you know, Biden's comment on Sunday night has now moved us into a strategically, you know, clear position. I think a few other, you know, just a few other thoughts, which is, you know, number one is we need to be taking actions which elongate Beijing's timelines, not contracting them. This situation is not one where we're gonna find a clear endpoint resolution on this unsatisfying as that is for Americans, we like to have solutions. This is, this is like it has always been, is going to be a long-term problem to be managed. And to date, the most successful approach we have is to continue to create and help sustain that space of, of stability and peace in the Taiwan Strait. And that means both deterring provocative moves by Taipei and Beijing, but also critically reassuring both sides. So in this case, it's finding ways in which we can Give Beijing that space to continue with the fiction that they will one day get towards a reunification with Taiwan. How do we do that? Number one is you'll notice that the last two crises the United States has had in the Taiwan Straits with China have not been over substantive things we've done to promote Taiwan's prosperity, security, resiliency, it has been these very, very symbolic things that the United States has been involved in, right? So 1995, 96, it was Lee Deng-hui's visit to Cornell. And then of course now it was the, the, the visit by uh, Speaker Pelosi. Not, none of those did anything to fundamentally help Taiwan's security. Now, other things we do, such as weapon sales, such as putting Marines on, on Taiwan, those anger Beijing, but those don't precipitate a crisis. So kind of principle number one is you can do a lot if you do it quietly and you you don't essentially ch- publicly challenge Beijing's domestic narrative. And I think that's hard for us because we do understand that Beijing is the provocator here. It is the one, it is the aggressor that says it wants to deny Taiwan sovereignty and independence. Nonetheless, we still have a responsibility to understand its its red lines. And there is a lot we can do to substantively support Taiwan just as long as we shy away from these very, very shallow symbolic acts that do nothing but ramp up Beijing's anxiety. So, again, that idea of what can we do to help Beijing see this as a long-term challenge where it can kick the can on. And any day Xi Jinping can get up and think, not today that that's a win for the United States right i think the second is really shifting our own mindset here from a sort of pro-Taiwan position that just is a spaghetti against the wall. Anything we can theoretically do, we should do without a discernment of, is this fundamentally adding to Taiwan's prosperity, its security, its resiliency? Those are, That's our three-part test. And if it's not fundamentally adding to those, especially if it's not fundamentally adding and allowing Beijing to continue to kick the can, then it's a bad thing to do, right? So you see things like we should change the name of the de facto embassy here, you know, called TECRO, where the T stands for Taipei. We change it to the Taiwan Representative Office. Now, does that fundamentally add to Taiwan's prosperity, resiliency, security? No. Is that the sort of thing that's going to sort of push Beijing into a much more anxious mood? Yes, it is, right? So that so we have to we have to have the maturity and the strategic foresight to not do as much as we are as we are to do, and then I think the final thing is we are in a strategic cul-de-sac here in the United States of seeing the Taiwan issue purely as a military issue, and purely as an issue of I'm doing air quotes sort of military deterrence. This is a political issue, right? This has always been a political issue. It's a political issue in Beijing, right? It's a it's a political issue here in, in the United States, and again that's why the visit by Pelosi which is a political act, is what precipitated this most recent uh, uh, crisis.
0: So I take it what we need to be doing is not talking in military terms, but talking in diplomatic terms.
1: Well, look, I think a credible military deterrent is absolutely vital to keep China at bay here. It is inarguable to me that if the United States had washed its hands of Taiwan five years ago, 50 years ago, the PLA would move against Taiwan. So our position here as a deterrent is absolutely vital as is by the way Taiwan's own upgrading of its capabilities especially asymmetric capabilities so it can be the you know it can be the poison pill that Beijing does not want to swallow that that's a that's a base threshold but that gets you about 10 yards down the field the rest of this is flexing every muscle of statecraft that the United States has right? having the maturity to understand that this is as much about strategic discourse and how we talk about taiwan this is about how do we provide support for taiwan but do it in a way that avoids the sort of the shoals of beijing's anger and again the lessons are there's a lot of space to do that you may you may upset beijing but that's okay what we want to do is we want to support taiwan in a in a sustainable manner such that we frankly, we do salami slice, but we salami slice to where we are taking the temperature down by doing things in a much more rational, calm, consistent manner, uh, under the radar, low key, quiet, um, such that we can continue to keep this space open. The absolute worst thing that we can be doing right now is to be militarizing the Taiwan issue because A, it's bad for Taiwan. You're gonna see companies, investors, begin to look at this as a toxic region and they're going to want to pull out. It's not good for Taiwan's economy. it's not good for Taiwan's morale to be told day in and day out you are at the the you are at the center of the bull'seye, right? Um, number two, militarizing this issue or treating this just as an issue of military deterrence feeds Beijing's own anxieties. What you are doing by having this be just a military deterrence issue is you're saying to the you're given the PLA, a great reason to be asking for more budget. You're you're whipping up the PLA, and then I think the third and most important thing is um, we're limiting our toolkit when we think of this just as a as a deterrence issue, as a military deterrence issue. Right? Um, uh, we need to be thinking about how do we involve other partners and allies. So, we internationalize this the Taiwan issue? How do we get the Japanese, the Australians, the Europeans, to be saying to Beijing, um, look. Uh, uh, peace and security, e- peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits, is a critical issue for us and our economies. Um, how do we be thinking about sustainable ways to help continue to build the resiliency of Taiwan's democracy by, you know, folding it into international training programs that we're doing? How do we increase people-to-people contact where we've got more, you know, visiting fellowships in Taiwan, where, where, we're, and 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 vice versa here? There's this whole toolkit that we have at our disposal. But unfortunately, every discussion right now is a war game on how deep are the mines and what is the beach landing site. And frankly, at a time like this, it's how do we prevent getting anywhere close to that? Because a war between the United States and China would be utterly, utterly catastrophic. First and foremost, for the people of Taiwan, who would be right in the shotgun blast uh, of that, but second for the United States and China themselves, and finally for the rest of the world. So, I, you know, I, I I don't often like to quote Sun Tzu, but this is a case where you want to win without fighting. You want to out strategize China. You want to you want to be as creative and flexible in your statecraft as possible, such that fifteen years from now, Taiwan has continued to grow and mature as a as a resilient, prosperous democracy. The region in and around the Taiwan Straits has remained prosperous secure and free and china continues to wake up to think yeah reunification someday but not today
0: jude blanchett a lot to think about here really helpful appreciate your time thank you if you enjoyed this podcast check out our larger suite of csis podcasts from into africa the asia chessboard china power aids 2020 the trade guys smart women smart power and more